Well, it's good to be here tonight with everybody, and I've got just a little message here to look at tonight. I don't know that it's going to be a very long one. And the title of my message tonight, it is Stewards, Stewards of Grace. Stewards of Grace. And I talked to Brother Jesse a little earlier in the week, and I'd mentioned that I was thinking about taking this for my, for my next subject. And I actually had a specific verse in mind that I wanted to use as a text, and when we went to do our Bible study this week, we actually used the same uh, verse that I had uh, had in mind in our Bible study. So I thought that was an interesting uh, coincidence and a good little uh, indication that uh, I was going in the right direction. And if you want to turn to the book of First Peter tonight, well, we'll read that verse and, and get started. The book of First Peter. starting here in chapter 4 and in verse number 7. And here it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity, love, shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability to which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, that you've been so good to us. Lord, you've just been there when we've needed you. Lord, where would we be today if it wasn't for your love and your compassion, for your mercy and for your grace? Lord, in the days of our deep sorrows, you were there. In the days of our pain and agony, you were there. In the days when we cried to you for deliverance, you heard our cry. And Lord, before the foundation of the world, you knew us and you loved us. And for such a time as this, Lord, we're coming to the kingdom to do your will and to do your work. And this is the work of God to believe on Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we believe. And as tonight we look at these few verses of Scripture, Lord, I pray you just give us a little glimpse and a deeper understanding and a closer connection to you. May we come just a little closer. Lord, the longing of our heart is to see you as you are. Open the eyes of our hearts. Let us fasten our eyes upon Jesus, that author and finisher of our faith. Help us now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So happy to see so many out here tonight. Praise the Lord. It's definitely another large increase from last Sunday. God is good. And I'm excited that we can start having Sunday morning services here next week. I want you all to know that you're all loved, you're appreciated, and I'm glad for each and every one of you that's here. I truly believe we have a desire in our hearts to walk with Christ and to be witnesses of the gospel. And over the past week, I was thinking about the subject of showing the grace of God. And as I thought about that, I don't know if that's something perhaps most of us actually ever heard very much about, showing grace to others. 
And I guess I'll, I'll tell the truth. I, I don't think I never once remember in my life ever hearing people talk about showing the grace of God to others. That's not a topic I think I ever heard covered until maybe really just two or three years ago I ever even knew anything about it. <laughs> you know, that's pretty awful in a way. Uh, now, maybe you all already know all about showing the grace of God to other people, and if you do, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. But for me, I know this is something that uh, definitely just came into my understanding not all that long ago in my life. And I honestly had never heard anyone uh, talk about it before. And Maybe that's a little bit of a condemnation of the preachers we listened to for many years who left out such important parts of the gospel when they preached. And that's just how some things are. Amen. And that's probably why so few people we know practice showing grace to others. Because no one ever told them about showing grace to others. Now this is a topic I wanna, uh, wanted to preach some time ago, but I never really got around to doing it. And So maybe, Lord willing, I can just share a little bit of that from my heart today. And Before maybe I really get to the main point I, I do wanna, that I want to convey to everybody, let me maybe just dive into these verses we've read here a little bit and get some context to what Peter is saying. First, first remember who Peter is. Peter was an apostle who had walked the earth with Jesus. And when Jesus shared all the parables and the gospels, when he told his stories with their hidden meanings, right? Peter was one of those men that Jesus has whispered to. And he said to Peter, you know, it's hidden from the world what all these parables mean, Peter. But unto you, Peter, it is given to know and understand the mysteries. Peter had an understanding. The Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, so many people that heard Jesus speak, they did not understand the point of what he was saying. They did not understand the meaning of his parables. You and I, maybe, we could even read the parables of Jesus and possibly not have a complete understanding. But Peter did. Peter understood, and so did the other apostles, and Jesus said that they did. That's how we know that they did. And as I read these few words here of Peter, certain things just jump out to me, you know, maybe cross-references, you might say, back to, back to other parts of the Bible. And maybe let me explain that just a little bit. If you notice there how Peter begins this section of his letter there in verse 7, he starts by saying, the end is at hand. The end is at hand. The end is coming. And you know, that's a true saying, right? The end is coming. We really don't know when. Some people might tell you they know when and set their dates, and then that they get those dates wrong two or three times. You need to run away from them because they're clearly some kind of false teacher or deceiver, all right? But truly, Jesus is coming back again. The end is coming, just like Peter said. And he said that about... 2,000 years ago now. The end was coming 2,000 years ago, and the end is still coming today. And I don't think Peter thought time would probably go on another 2,000 years when he said that, but it did. But the thing is, Peter never really set a date down, like so many people we know have done. And there, there is a right way to talk about the coming of the end, and then there's a very wrong way to talk about the end. And Peter here shows us a way that is the right way. Paul shows us the same right way, really, if we go read the things that he said. And the thing is, the way Peter and Paul talk about the end coming is, is different than 
most of the way that you and I have heard other people talk about the end coming for most of our lives. And let's just catch the rest here in verse 7. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. Catch the next part. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. <coughs> now don't answer this, but I do just want to ask you a question. Does anyone recognize the second half of verse 7? What is that? Where does that come from? You know, Peter right there is quoting Jesus. Something Jesus said in his parables, isn't he? Right there he's quoting Jesus. And this gives us a pretty good clue maybe of what parable even G Peter was thinking of when he said these things. The one that maybe inspired him to speak these things. And, and you know, when it comes to interpreting the parables, I trust Peter. I do. Because Peter, Jesus told me Peter understands the mysteries of the kingdom. There's a bunch of people maybe that's told us a lot of things about the parables. Jesus never told me that they understood, but he did tell me that Peter understood. So let me read what Peter understood concerning the parable of the end. Verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, be serious about it, and watch unto prayer. You'll find that Jesus said that using those words in the parable of the talents, as recorded in the book of Mark. Verse 8, and above all things, <clears throat> have fervent charity, love among yourselves. For charity, love, will cover the multitude of sins. Now you notice there that Peter's choice of words there in verse 8, he's kind of noticed that choice of words, because I think it's very important how he, he phrases all of that. He says there, above all things. Above all things. You know, that's like me saying, most importantly, or as your top priority, have charity, have love. The end of all things is coming. Be sober, watch, pray, quoting Jesus. And above all, most importantly, make your highest goal to have fervent love. Mine. You know, and the way Peter says that, above all, you know, I want us to realize that's not just accidental phrasing, the way that Peter said that. Peter wants us to understand that the most important thing to take away from our knowledge that the end is coming, you know, in light of that knowledge that the end will come one day, there is something that Christians need to be sure that they have above all else. That's what Peter's saying. We need above all else to have fervent love. Not more money, not more land, not more knowledge, not more power, not more even understanding of mysteries. If we truly believe the end is coming, the most important thing that we need to have is fervent love. And Peter's not the only one to preach that to us, right? This isn't just one verse out of context, out in left field, but this is the pattern that all of the apostles actually point to if you read through the different epistles. And maybe let me just cross-reference this with a couple other verses. You can turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 14. And notice here, I'll read what it says. Colossians 3.14 And above all these things put on 
Charity. Love, which is the bond of perfectness. You know, I find it really interesting that Paul worded this pretty well identically to how Peter did, right, when he talked about it. Above all, most importantly, highest goal, have love. Have love. This love is the most important thing to the Apostle Paul. It's the most important thing to the Apostle Peter. If we read the epistles of John, it's the most important thing to John. If we read the epistles of James, James talks about it. If we read Jude, Jude talks about it. All of them cover it. And of course Jesus did, because he's the one that they learned that from. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll, we'll see some more. Paul maybe gives a little deeper explanation here in 1 Corinthians 13 at just how important love is. Just why it's so important. 1, 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not charity, love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, my, you know, that's, that's a lot right there. And though I have all faith so that I could even remove mountains, yet I have not charity, I don't have love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, and I have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Nothing. Knowing all the mysteries, having all the gifts, doing all the great works. If there's not love here in this heart, it's all worthless. Above all, put on love. Above all things, have fervent love. These, that saying is not an outlier in the New Testament. It actually is at the heart of the New Testament. Amen. It's, it's the goal. It's a key. It's a purpose. A heart full of God's love will cover a multitude of sins. A heart full of God's love is the fruit he is looking for. Amen. Above all, we need that love. You know, and I can't look into someone's heart and know whether there's a genuine love there or not. You know it? But there's certainly things I can look at. And I can say those things are some really strong indications that there's not any love there. Right? And when we look at people who've destroyed their homes, their own homes, destroyed their own families, destroyed their own relationships, and then not just their own, but they work overtime to spread their miserable ways to others even, when they show no respect, no kindness, no mercy, even to the extent that they drive people to suicide and sit by and watch while their neighbors are killed and injured and harmed and do nothing. They abuse people. They harass people. They involve themselves with the support of all manner of cruelties. You know, when you see someone doing those things, I really feel safe and assured that there's really probably not any love in the person like that. And there's probably not a whole lot of love in people that go along with those things. Because if we read here of what Paul says in chapter 13, none of those things I just said, if you read on the next few verses, none of those things are compatible with this love that God wants us to have. 
There's people who say they have love, but it's corrective love. We've heard that one a lot, haven't we? And you know, it's very true, love can be corrective. That's right. You know, but the thing of it is, when you read what Paul says here, if you went on through these next few verses, Paul doesn't mention anything about corrective love and what God's looking for. Paul here pretty clearly lets us know God is not looking for us just to have a corrective love. You know, if all we got is corrective love, we have come up mighty short, you know it, of the love of God. In fact, like I said, Paul don't even mention corrective love in his list or description of the divine love that God wants us to have. And if all a person has is corrective love, they are in serious trouble because that is not good enough. It's not good enough. And though they have lots of so-called corrective love, and although they have all the knowledge of all the mysteries and all the gifts and all the rest, their utter lack of the godly love that Paul is talking about here puts them in a really bad spot. Amen? And that's why people without that love destroy their homes and destroy their families and then go out and seek to destroy other people's homes and other people's families after they've done wreaked havoc on their own. And they perpetrated, perpetrated all manner of cruel abuses. They're fruitless. They're fruitless. Turn with me back over to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll just pick right back up there. 1 Peter chapter 4. Fruitless people and making fruitless disciples. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity, love among yourselves. Among yourselves. So maybe let me paraphrase Peter here a little bit. He says, The end of the world is coming. So love each other. <laughs> the end of the world is coming. Make sure you've got lots of love for each other in your hearts. Because when Jesus comes back, that's what he's going to be looking for in our lives. That is the great commandment. Amen. You know, when you think about that, have you ever heard any doomsday preachers ever tell you that that was the appropriate response to the end of the world? <laughs> The world's ending. Love one another. Is that what we heard? That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Maybe go over with me to 2 Peter. We'll read just a little more about what Peter has to say about love in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1 here, Peter tells us that if we have love, if we are fruitful in that way, we're going to have an entrance to heaven. Let me, let me just read. I, I could read the whole chapter. I love... 1 Peter chapter 1. Oh my goodness. This is, I don't, I don't want to say I have favorite parts of the Bible, but this is a chapter of the Bible that I love that has spoken to me so much in my life. This is a chapter of the Bible that set me free quite some long time ago. Amen. When I saw the things here. You know, I, I grew up in, a, I grew up where I grew up at. The preacher said, if you want to go in the rapture, you got to be bear fruit. And you know, I, I heard that and for years I tormented myself i got to bear fruit. i got to bear fruit. You know, the thing is, so many years went by, no one ever told me what that fruit was. And I spent so long trying to figure out, what is this fruit that I need so I can go in the rapture? And I found the answer right here in Second Peter chapter 1. 
long ago now. It's probably been five, six, seven, eight. Oh my, it's probably been 10 years ago now that I found this. Time flies, you know. But it's been a while. The answer is right here. The fruit that we need. Second Peter chapter 1. You know, I still believe that. You do need fruit to go in the rapture. Just not the kind of fruit they was talking about. <laughs> the kind the Bible talks about. Second Peter chapter 1. He says here, and I'll just start at verse 5, and the rest of it all adds into this. But he says, and besides this, giving all diligence, your best, your best effort, add to your faith, right? Faith to the saving of your soul. Add to your faith virtue. Virtue. And, you know, virtue is high moral standards. That's what virtue is. And if someone tries to tell you that word, virtue means something else, then you just need to go get a dictionary and look that up and see what that means because I've heard lots of people tell me what that word virtue means that <laughs> apparently didn't know in a dictionary. And add to your virtue knowledge. Knowledge. The knowledge of him that has called you. You see that back in verse 3. He's calling back to verse 3 there. The knowledge of Jesus. He is the truth. And to your knowledge add temperance, self-control. And to temperance, patience. Everyone knows what patience is. And to patience, godliness. Be like God. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity, which is love. Love. Now, what did Peter describe here? You know, if we, if we just wanted to maybe boil down and summarize what he's been describing here. Peter's been describing the way that the fruit of the Spirit grows in our life. That's exactly what he's describing there. And we don't even got to guess at that because he tells us that in the next verse. Read verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we have those things in us, we are not unfruitful. We're fruitful. We're fruitful. If I got those things in my life, I am fruitful. Praise the Lord. I'm a fruitful Christian. Amen? I believe I've got a, a room full of fruitful Christians here because I can see these things that Paul, Peter was talking about in the lives of the people in this room. I hope you can look in your own lives and see those things in your life. We are fruitful Christians. If these things be in you and abound, they make ye that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have those things, we are not unfruitful. If we have those things in our lives, we have exactly what Jesus is looking for. We have exactly what he wants us to have. And just notice again there how Peter climaxed there in verse 7 with charity, with love, right? Again, it all wraps back to love, don't it? Praise the Lord. If we've got all of those other things, but it never then climaxed to produce love in our hearts, we're nothing. We're nothing. Let me read verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind. He cannot see afar off. He'd forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So if we lack what Peter described there in those verses, we end up just a blind person. But if we actually have what Peter is describing there, if our lives have been fruitful in the way he's describing, and we have faith towards God, we've been virtuous and loving, just like Peter's talking about, then verse 10, verse 10 is where we land. He says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, 
give diligence to make your election and calling sure. For if ye do these things, these things, ye shall never, never fall. What things? Love, brotherly kindness, patience, temperance, faith towards God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he is, what he means to us. The things that Peter just told us about. The things that he just said were the opposite of unfruitful, which is fruitful. If we do that, we will never fall. You will never fall if you have these things in your life. If we're fruitful, if we have those characteristics of godliness in our life, we'll never fall. Amen. Do you believe the Bible? I believe the Bible. The Bible set me free. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for it. If I have that kind of fruit, I can be assured I will never fall. And I believe Peter knew what he was talking about. I don't think Peter was telling me something that's not true. And read verse 11. What happens if I got those things? For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I believe Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter understood the mysteries of this kingdom that he's talking about. He surely knew the way in. Amen. He knew what it took to make it. He knew what it took to be fruitful. And if we have the things that Peter was talking about, he has assured us we are going to have an abundant entrance into that everlasting kingdom. An abundant entrance. It's a big, wide entrance. It's not a, a, an unabundant, a narrow entrance. It's an abundant, wide entrance into this kingdom if we have these things. We can't miss it. Amen. And of course, I know lots of people that would tell you that what Peter said here on this list is not good enough to make an entrance into heaven. We know people say all kinds of things there that maybe you need that didn't make Peter's list. But I believe Peter. I think he knew what he was talking about. Amen. And at the end of the day, I have to conclude the people that say what Peter said here isn't good enough, they probably don't know what they're talking about. So let me go back over to 1 Peter chapter 4 again. There's so much in those verses we could talk about. We know we need to come to saving faith in Christ. We need to be baptized and repent of our sins and be filled with the Holy Ghost and become a fruitful Christian, bear fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But here in chapter 4, back to verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, watch into prayer. And above all things have fervent charity, love, among yourselves. So I hope maybe reading those other verses can help maybe pack some meaning there behind verse 8. Above all things, have fervent charity, have fervent love among yourselves. We can maybe understand a little bit why Peter puts such an emphasis on that verse there. Above all things, have fervent love. Amen. And that really is the truth. Above all have love. And the people who tell you above all have some other thing, <laughs> they're probably a deceiver. You might need to run away from them. 
But as we read on here into these next verses, Peter is going to explain to us a few of the ways that this love will manifest in the lives of Christians. And he goes on here to say, For charity, love, shall cover the multitude of sins. That covering there, and that, that, that verse, that covering is the same word as being covered by the blood of Jesus. You know, that's talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness. But it's not really talking in that verse about Christ forgiving us and loving us and forgiving us. But it's talking about us having love among ourselves and forgiving each other. It's talking about loving one another. Love will cover a multitude of sins. You know, and that's so true, isn't it? You know, I've got, I've got children. Sometimes they'll do things maybe they shouldn't do. But love will cover a multitude of sins. I remember one time my kids got the Sharpie marker and uh, they drew all over the couch. <laughs> there was no getting that out. And you know, yeah, you might have been a little upset there at first. But love covers a multitude of sins, right? Now it's just a funny story. You know, my wife and I, we get along so good. I'm so thankful for her. There's a love there, right? She's not afraid to say, Charles, I put another dent in the car. (laughs) Because she knows I love her and I forgave the last five dents. I don't think I even raised my voice. Praise the Lord. And you know, if there gets to be one more dent, I'll forgive one more time. Amen. I love my wife. I love her. And fussing over a dent in the car is not worth anything. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I I put the other half in. (laughs) The other five dents are mine, so... (laughs) you know in my goodness i could i could stand here for hours and tell you about the love that's covered the multitude of my sins amen my wife is a saint all those times i was not all that i should be love has covered a multitude of sins and you know and that's how relationships should be right let there be love above all let there be love amen i got more to say on this but we'll we'll go a little further verse nine Use hospitality one to another without grudging. This is another thing that love will do. Hospitality. You know, there's a friendliness there, a welcoming, a kindness. Hospitality sets people at ease, doesn't it? I I went down not too long ago to Brother Tim Humes down there, and I don't know. I don't know if I could have maybe known exactly how great hospitality could be till I had went to see him. My goodness, he he treated me with some really good hospitality down there, and I'm not really necessarily talking about a, you know a nice meal and things like that, which he did. He fed us good, but when someone can set you at ease, you know that's a big part of hospitality, right? When we can show one another we're friendly, and I don't bite, <laughs> right? When we're together and we meet people and we can set each other at ease, that ability to show a hospitality and, and, and set others at ease in that way, that's one of the ways that our love shows, right? You know, Jesus was a very easy person to be around. He was meek and lowly. When I read about Jesus and, and, it, and he talks about being meek and lowly, I, I read that as Jesus was a very easy person to be around. He's, he, he wasn't somebody that was... Uh, Rubbed, uh, rubbed people the wrong way. I guess I'll put it that way. You know what I mean. He was easy. You went and sat at his house, and 
He didn't give you the evil eye because you sat in the wrong chair, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? <laughs> if you took the last pork chop off the plate in the middle, which I guess they didn't eat pork chops. If you took the last brisket, how about I go with that one? You took the last brisket off the plate. <laughs> I don't think Jesus was at the other end of the table giving you the evil eye, right? I think Jesus was meek and lowly. He was easy to get along with, if you understand what I mean. He was hospitable, right? He was easy to get along with. Amen. And when I, when I read that hospitality, I think, of, I think of that. He put people at ease when they were in his company. You know, it goes to say there, he goes on to say there, without grudging, which kind of means willingly, right? Because we want to. Because we, we love to, right? We just love to. We love to be nice. We love to be good. We love to be kind. It's in our hearts, without grudging. And then that brings us to verse 10, which really is the main verse that I want to look at tonight. And you might say, boy, it took you a long time to get there, but, well, here we are. This main verse, let me read it. It says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And... I just want to take a little while to unpack this verse here and analyze it. And kind of maybe we'll start by looking at the very first word in this verse. And the first word in the verse is as, A-S, a very simple little two-letter word, as. And that word as is a comparative word. So this verse is further explaining what Peter was just talking about. What Peter was describing in verses 8 and 9, he's explaining the same thing. In verse 10, he's just using different language to explain the same thing. That's what the word as indicates. And what really jumps out to me in this verse is, is the very last part of it. Peter says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This verse is where I draw my title at tonight. Good stewards. And my title was Stewards of Grace. And Peter here tells us again something really important. You and I are stewards of the grace of God. There's something we're responsible for as children of God and as servants of God. We're stewards of this grace. And stewards are caretakers. They have an oversight of things that have been entrusted to them. And that way a steward is empowered both to protect and to put into use whatever has been entrusted to them. And you and I are stewards of the manifold grace of God. That manifold grace of God has been entrusted to us. And stewardship has different areas of responsibility. And one of those areas would be to protect and preserve what's in your care, right? To guard it like a, a valuable treasure. To ensure it's not lost and not diminished. But stewardship entails more than just protecting something. Because we could certainly, you know, dig a hole in the backyard and bury it over, right? And it'd be well protected, right? But stewardship is more than that. Amen? Stewardship is more than that. Stewardship requires us also to put to use and employ the things that have been entrusted to us. To make sure that it's responsibly used as an asset. You know, when we could go back to the parable where Jesus talks about being a steward, 
and compare it right here to what the Apostle Peter is saying. And this again gives us a very solid indication of what parable Peter had in mind when he was saying these things, right? Because it's the same parable where he says, watch and pray and be sober, back in Mark 13. It's even more detail in Matthew 24 and 25. But here Peter is telling us the most important thing that the stewards of God's grace are responsible for. This manifold grace of God. And if we diminish the grace of God, we are not a good steward. If we fail to protect the grace of God when others try to diminish it, we are not a good steward. If we fail to employ the grace of God, fail to share it, and fail to keep its understanding alive, we have not been good stewards of the grace of God. If we fail to employ that grace that God gave us, if we fail to put it to use, if we fail to serve it and use it in due season when it's necessary to be used, when it's called for, then we have failed as stewards. If we fail to model that grace of God for others to see, then we have failed as stewards. Because as stewards, we have to model that grace of God for others to see. We have to put it on display. We have to put it to use. And as stewards, we are empowered to use and to share that grace. Amen. Not to take what the Lord has given us and go bury it and hide it, but to actually put it to use. And that's a responsibility that belongs to the true servants of God and the true stewards of God. But it's a responsibility that will be neglected by the bad servants and the bad stewards. Amen. Now Peter there, he, he uses a word to describe this grace of God that we are stewards of. And the word he uses to describe this grace is manifold. Manifold. It's not simply the grace of God that we're stewards of, but it is the manifold grace of God. The many folded layers of this grace of God. The full depth of its riches and richness. The grace of God in its totality. That is what we are the stewards of. All of it. The manifold grace of God in all of its richness. And that word manifold, that really means all the different aspects of the grace of God. And that word by itself lets us know that the grace of God is not a narrow little thing. It's not a narrow little topic, but it's deep. It's multifaceted. Its aspects are manifold. And if we take a narrow view of the grace of God, that by itself makes us bad stewards of it. <laughs> Because the grace of God has many aspects. Many aspects that we are responsible for as stewards. And I, I want to remind my listeners tonight of just a few of those areas. A few different of the areas and aspects of God's grace. Because, you know, we've come from places where the grace of God was shared. But it was not the manifold grace of God. It was a narrow little grace of God. Places that we've come from, maybe the grace of God did not have a broad application, but just a narrow application. Where we come from, you're saved by grace, if you were predestined. 
But that grace kind of ends right there. It was narrow. I don't even know that all of them believed in it that far. But I'm not a steward of a narrow, limited grace. I'm a steward of a manifold grace. Praise the Lord. And I could tell you and teach you that you're saved by grace. That is true. But you know, if that's as far as I go with God's grace, I have sure left out a whole lot of it. You know it? But God's grace will take you further than just the immediate salvation of your soul. The saving grace of God is not limited to our immediate salvation. That's just one of its manifold aspects if we read the scripture. There's many aspects of the grace of God. And I, I as a steward, I'm not just a steward for God's grace for salvation, but I'm also a steward of God's manifold grace in all these other aspects as well. And if I deny or diminish or limit any of these other aspects as well, I'm not a good steward of the grace of God. And we certainly don't have a certainly time this evening to deep dive into all the different aspects of this manifold grace of God. There's just kind of two aspects I'm going to look at tonight. But I actually, when I started here, I had listed down about eight different aspects, but I'm just going to keep it to the two that are most pertinent, I think, to the topic tonight. But besides God's saving grace, there's also God's sustaining grace. Grace does not just save us, but it also sustains us once we are saved. His sustaining grace preserves us and keeps us. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains that we stand in this grace. We didn't just get uh, saved by it, now we're standing in it. We're in it. We're inside of this grace, day in and day out. It's a place where we stay. You don't just get saved by grace, and then after that you keep saved by your works and your knowledge and your performance. The grace by which we are saved is also sufficient to keep us whatever comes our way in life. And in this life we strive to do our best, to live for the Lord as best we can. But when we come up short, His grace is there still. There's grace for that too. You know that? When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees our perfect Savior. He sees what he did for us to redeem us. We're perfect in the eyes of God because our heart is right with him. Jesus has reconciled us to God. We're perfect in the eyes of God in that way. But in practice, we're still growing in grace. Every day we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And we all got a ways to go, don't we? And every day that we're here on earth, we got an opportunity to grow a little more. But until we're all changed to be like him, we're bound to have some shortcomings at times, aren't we? But that sustaining grace, that sufficient grace, it's enough for those shortcomings. I can do my best and let God's grace take care of what is beyond my best. Until I'm changed and I have a glorified body, I'm never going to be as perfect as Jesus. But I don't have to be as perfect as Jesus today because Jesus is as perfect as Jesus today. Hallelujah! You know, if I could be as perfect as Jesus today, I wouldn't need Jesus. I could just save myself. But I have shortcomings, and God knows that I do. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why I need Jesus. And that's all part of his sustaining grace. I'm so thankful for that sustaining grace. 
And when we're saved, you know, we're perfect in a sense, maybe. In a sense that God sees us as a completed work. But we're not perfect in the sense that we are that completed work already, right? That's coming. One day we're going to be changed. When we see him, we'll be as he is. We'll have a life like him. But we're not there yet, are we? But his grace is here. His grace is here not just to save us, but to look beyond our deficiencies until that day comes that we are like him. That's part of God's grace, overlooking our shortcomings between now and the day that we're changed and made to be like Jesus. So God's grace overlooks our shortcomings. That is an aspect of God's grace, overlooking our shortcomings. And God's grace is also there to help us grow over our shortcomings too and help us overcome them. And God himself, he is personally showing that kind of grace to us. A grace that looks beyond our limitations, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, and sees what we will be. That is one more aspect of the manifold grace of God. And there's plenty more aspects we could talk about. But I'm just going to stop with those, those two aspects I've talked about tonight. His saving grace and his sustaining grace. And he shows us both of those things are in our lives and for our lives. But here in this chapter in verse 10, the thing of it is, it says, we are the stewards of that manifold grace, this kind of grace that I'm talking about. We ourselves have been entrusted with that very grace. And as stewards, we have to put that grace to use. And one important way that we do that is by showing that grace to other people, just like God shows it to us. Praise the Lord. Let me go back to read the very last part of verse 10 here. I'll read the whole verse. And as every man hath received the gift... Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This grace is a gift from God, and we're called to minister this grace to one another. Grace is kind. It's merciful. It overlooks shortcomings. Grace is understanding. It is compassionate. It looks beyond what we are today and sees us for what we will be in eternity. Hallelujah. That is grace. And we're called to minister grace to each other. We're called to show each other this grace and be stewards of it. We can't withhold it. We can't be stingy with God's grace and be a good steward. But we've received that gift and we need to minister that gift to each other. Let us show each other grace. And you know, we've come from different walks, different places. We've had different experiences. We've been through different trials, through different tribulations. We're not yet what we are going to be. But one thing is for sure, we're all God's children. We've all found His saving grace. We're all walking in His sustaining grace. And if we can find it within ourselves to be good stewards of that grace and minister it to others and each other... I believe it'll heal our wounds like a healing salve. If we can show each other a little grace, a little understanding, a little mercy, 
if we can model that grace to each other and whoever the Lord would send our way, I think God will be very pleased with us as the good stewards of his grace. And those around us, maybe they can get a little taste of what God's grace is like when they see us modeling it and reflecting it to others. You know, we've been called to be like Jesus. And Jesus showed a lot of grace to people, didn't he? And as stewards, we are empowered to do the same thing. We're empowered as stewards of that same grace to show that grace to people too. We're empowered to overlook the shortcomings of others and see them as what they will be one day. And as good stewards of God's grace, that is exactly what I want to do. You know, I think back to the Old Testament when when the temple was there in Jerusalem and had been destroyed. Zerubbabel, he'd come to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and they had to dig and dig and dig and dig and it wasn't easy for them. But they had to dig to find the cornerstone of the temple. It was covered up in rubble. So much rubble was on top of this thing. They had to dig and dig and dig to find the cornerstone. And you know, Jesus, my precious Jesus has been buried under so much rubble where I came from. We've had to dig and dig and dig, I feel, to find him. We've had to dig to find that chief cornerstone of our faith. But thanks be to God, we've discovered that foundation stone. You know, when Zerubbabel finally found that cornerstone buried under all that rubble, he cried out, Grace! 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 He cried out, Grace! As he uncovered that cornerstone. Because grace is what let him find it. And grace was the great revelation of finding that cornerstone. And today as we go forward and as we uncover that cornerstone... And as we set to work building the temple of the Lord, hallelujah, let's cry out, grace, grace. What was buried has been uncovered. What was hidden has been found. What was covered with debris has been made clear. And here we are today rejoicing over the goodness of the Lord. And we are stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we've been empowered to put it to good use. Let us not simply pay lip service to grace as some people do, but let's actually put it to practice. Let's actually put that grace into action. Let's actually obey the Bible. (laughs) In Jesus' name, let's do that. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let me close here in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you've been so wonderful to us. Lord, as we look and see the turmoil, the confusion, the perplexity of many, Lord, you bring us peace. Lord, you bring us rest for our souls. Lord, in you we find confidence. In you we find understanding and clarity. Lord, you've delivered us from great turmoil. Truly, you've proven to us that you are a deliverer. We thank you and we worship you for it. Thank you for your saving grace. Thank you for your sustaining grace. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You're all dismissed.